Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Tall Moments in Time, and the third in our series of audio documentaries where we bring you eyewitness accounts of key moments in Liverpool Football Club's history. This time we go back to the 12th of May 2001 and to Cardiff for the FA Cup final. The story is narrated by me, John Gibbons, for the Anfield Wrap. Liverpool actually went into the new year sixth in the table, but as the games got bigger, the Reds got stronger. Phil Thompson was assistant manager to Gerard Houllier throughout his time at Liverpool. The turn of the year in 2001, that's when it all starts, isn't it? The FA Cup starts, which I absolutely loved. That starts. You had the semi-finals of the League Cup coming up, two legs. Uh, you know they're going to be important. You've then got the UEFA Cup, which is now gathering importance and getting to the to the major stage of it so you're looking and people are talking and you can't get away from that you know what would you take would you take one of the trophies would you take a couple of them and it was focus focus on each game let's see where we get and as it got closer you're like that you are you're, you're having to keep your mind well what would you accept Champions League football because it wasn't just the Cups it was Champions League football you had to finish in the top three uh, back in 2001 not the top four as we've got now so that was massive so to, to finish in the top three of all those teams was going to be huge for the club back in the big time In 2001 Chris Baskin was chief LFC reporter for the Liverpool Echo whilst Ollie Kay was spending his first season as Northwest reporter for the Times Early in the season I don't think the form was that I think it was quite erratic really and yeah by the time they got to the business end about March they just went on this unbelievable run I think they lost the game at Easter to, to, to Leeds and then just seemed to win every game That Liverpool squad in terms of numbers and in terms of strength and depth is probably stronger than or as strong as they've ever had since it was really strong and you know there was a lot of debate sort of week to week press conference to press conference about Robbie Fowler in particular and obviously Michael Owen was the Golden boy and, and Hesky had come in, you know, for big money and and was was seen very much as a partner for, for Owen and, and Fowler was kind of the the third in line almost. The strikers they had, there was four of them, wasn't there? There was Hesky, Owen, Fowler, and Lippmann. But Robbie played in the League Cup final, and Michael Owen didn't. It's unbelievable when you think back. Michael Owen left out, and obviously Michael was absolutely devastated by that. I might not have come out so much in the papers at the time, but he wasn't happy at all. And then of course Robbie. He's not playing in the FA Cup final, which I know would have hurt him deeply, you know. For supporters, the excitement of a team who finally looked capable of winning had built throughout the year. Gareth Roberts is a host at the Anfield Van. Really into it that year, um, and I think it's like an underrated time in, in Liverpool history. I mean, I was sort of 25-ish, so young and beautiful and uh, going out on the aisle and enjoying it all with my friends and no real responsibilities at that point. So yeah, I was going to a lot. Um, went to, was going to you know home and away, cup games, went to all the cup finals that year, including the FA Cup final. 
And it was a great start, a great side and a great time for Liverpool and worth remembering also the, the European ban and that sort of thing and the fact that that was like a year really where it was like you could really get excited about Liverpool and it felt like our team, our time. For any footballer, your first FA Cup final is a special one. It doesn't matter if you're Sander Vesterveld growing up in Holland, Stefan Oncho born in Switzerland or Jamie Carragher in Boodle. I've said it many times before, like, uh, I grew up as a kid yeah, with, with Liverpool as my, as my English club. Of course, when I grew up, yeah, Liverpool was winning everything, uh, good old days. So, yeah, yeah, I grew up watching Liverpool, the road to Wembley, all those times and, and trophies. That's, uh, yeah, they were amazing days. The, the whole day, it's like a week before. Even in Holland, people were watching like days before already. That, that was... For also for Dutch people and still now the biggest cup competition in the world. For me, the FA Cup final was bigger than the UEFA Cup. Why? Because as a kid, that was the only game we had live on TV. That was once a year, the FA Cup final. And I was watching every single uh, cup final and I would never have you know, dreamt that I would play in one of them and winning it, you know. Was for me it was a bit when I was watching games like that. It was a bit like walking on the moon, you know. Not something for me really. So uh, that was what it meant so much when we reached it. Thinking I'm going to play uh, the FA Cup final, just like really a dream come true. I mean, the FA Cup was everything to me as a kid growing up. It was my first memory of of football as a kid that I can ever remember. It was as you're probably aware, it was Everton beat Watford. It's the first game I can ever remember watching on TV. That's what has my first memory. Of course, reaching an FA Cup final isn't just an honour for the players. For referee Steve Dunn, it was the accumulation of years of hard work. The world of refereeing, that we only get the one opportunity to referee the FA Cup final. It's always been that way. I mean, obviously not everybody gets to do it, but once you've done the Cup final, that's your lot. You just get it's a one-off. It's a one-off appointment. But it's obviously, domestically, it's the pinnacle of a, a referee's career. It's uh, you know it means a lot. It's it's a huge honour and a you know and a big responsibility. But it's one that everybody, well, every referee hopes comes their way. And you normally hear about it as I did on the Sunday evening of the semi-finals. So they appoint you quite a few weeks in advance. So you've got a long time to prepare. The big difference in the build-up to the game was away from the, the stadium and what have you. That was in the weeks leading up. It was like just a media frenzy. It seemed as though it was just an unending list of interviews. And it seemed as though everybody wanted a bit of your time. It was endless. I mean, it just went on. It was pretty much every day there was something. There was, it was interesting because at the time, this was the summer before we went full-time um, as referees. So we were all still in other employment. And I was an engineer by trade, but I'd, I'd left engineering in 96 when I got onto the FIFA list because it was just impossible to hold down a normal job. And me and my wife got ourselves a, a news agent in the centre of Bristol. So you can imagine on every morning there was something in the newspapers about the cup final, certainly in the last few days. So it was, it was in my face pretty much all the time. I actually bought 17 tickets from a family so I could take everybody. It cost me a fortune to actually referee the game. And to the day of the game, supporters Kevin Walsh and Dan Morgan both had eventful journeys to Cardiff. Went down on the day, if I remember rightly, we broke down about an hour outside Cardiff, which was a bit of a nightmare. Unbelievably, we managed to get the coach fixed by putting dried grass into the radiator and somehow that got us there. I don't know how we managed to get home, I've got no idea, but that got us into Cardiff itself. We were breaking down, baking hot day, and all cars flying past people and us thinking we were stopping just to have a toilet break or whatever, but no, no, we'd actually broken down on the side of a mountain. I've, I've no, no idea who the, the mechanic was on the coach, but apparently dried grass in, your, in the radiator was what it needed. <laughs> I remember it quite specifically, to be honest, because I was in year 11 in school and I'd watched a lot of football at Liverpool that season. I'd been home and away a lot. I'd been to the, the League Cup final, so I'd been to Cardiff before. And all the way up to the game, I didn't have a ticket up until the week of the game. And I remember on the, the Tuesday, my mum managed to get me a ticket through someone she worked with. And it was an £80 ticket, so it was like the dearest one and it cost a lot. And I was over the moon, but I didn't know. She got me a ticket and on that day. I got I got sent home from school for something I I still to this day maintain I didn't do. But I got sent home from school and I remember getting home and um, my mum being absolutely livid with me and telling me she had me a ticket but telling me that I couldn't go. 
So <laughs> I went straight out the house and went and bought my coach ticket because I knew full well she would in the end. She wilted on about the Thursday. By that time, I'd had my coach ticket and I'd had everything sorted for about two days. So I knew I was going. And when she found out I'd done all that, she, you know, she cracked a bit of a laugh. But look, if I was bang out of order, I'd have held my hands up. But I still maintain to this day I was, I was the innocent party. Of course, Liverpool already had a trophy that season and a win at the Millennium Stadium. So players and staff were keen to keep as much as possible the same. I think we went to the, the Vale of Glamorgan again, which was a fantastic hotel. So you went past, so you had to come back towards it, so we knew that the travelling would be okay. So everything was done the same. I know some managers go a little bit different, and they only like to keep the squad together. I think Rafa only liked his, his 16 or 18 players, and that was it. Julier wanted everybody there, so we literally needed nearly two coaches. There was that many players. Everybody who took part in the League Cup and played in all the games, he wanted them present. And come the FA Cup, he'd done exactly the same thing. So we had a large, large crew there with us. So we had a similar day, and that's why I think the first one was really important, because it was a new stadium and everything was new. But then the FA Cup, we were in the same dressing room even. Uh, we were in the same hotel. So it was like a little deja vu, and I think it gave us confidence as well. Like, uh, yeah, we've been here before, done this, we experienced everything, it's not new anymore, and yeah, let's go out and win this. And the whole atmosphere around that game was, was, was confidence. Arsenal at that time was, were flying, they were really good. But I don't think we were afraid of them, and we had a lot of confidence going into that game. And I think it was quite relaxed, actually. At breakfast and pre-match meals, and everybody was really looking forward to the game. For the first time since 1922, a cup final was being held away from Wembley. For players and managers, you dream of walking out of the tunnel at Wembley Stadium. So how do the thoughts of a final at Cardiff compare? I mean, that was something, a, a dream of mine, to win something with Liverpool at Wembley. I, I got that towards the end of my career, but I think Cardiff become like a second home to us, really. We seemed to take over the place. It was really close to the pitch, the supporters, and I don't know, there was something special about Cardiff. It, it didn't feel like secondary or not quite Wembley. Of course, Wembley's Wembley, but you look at Wembley now and how far away it is from the, the pitch. This, I mean, listen, it was that years ago as well, but, you know, the seats are empty at different times. It felt like Cardiff felt, it felt special, to be honest. Now, I've never wished it that much. I just think we, we had something special going at Cardiff and that, that was well, the second part of it after we'd beaten Birmingham. Well, yeah, of course, it, it, it's, it's great to play a final anyway and it doesn't matter where. And I can say, even if it was in, in, in Sefton Park, it would be okay for us, because the cup is a cup. But I would be lying a bit, because like I said before, um, yeah, the road to Wembley is, is, is not the same as the road to Cardiff. And uh, yeah, Wembley, for, especially for foreigners, but of course for English as well, it's a football temple. And yeah, that's, that's the FA Cup. Wembley belongs to the FA Cup. So, yeah, of course, yeah, it was a little bit a pity, but yeah. It's not a bad stadium anyway. Uh, there were 75 or something uh, thousand people in the stadium. The, the atmosphere is great. So, uh, no, I, I loved all those finals we played there. Do you know something? Cardiff becomes so special. Not only that, when you visited it, you thought, it seemed a nice place. Cardiff itself was very welcoming. It was like sort of playing at home, if you want it. Not just become that way, because we've been there for the, the, the very first game that was at Cardiff, which was against Birmingham. So this place, because we've been there before, we, you felt as though you knew it a little bit. I thought it was a fantastic footballing stadium. Now, the Welsh would probably go berserk and say, no, it's a rugby stadium and it's this. But it wasn't, because it was sort of high embankments, very close, the noise element made it incredible. You felt like you were in a proper football and stadium, a new modern football and stadium. So, yes, I had a bit of a regret it not being a went, but not massive, not massive. I think the game itself was more important than anything. Of course, players and managers have a slightly different matchday experience to the rest of us. For those of us who sit in the stands and like to enjoy your city's hospitality, Cardiff was a gift from heaven. By the time Wembley was knocked down, in, what was it, 2000, 2001, there was probably such an apathy towards Wembley. It wasn't really that much loved and it wasn't going to be much missed. I'm sure a lot of the media romanticised it, but I think anyone who had been there as a fan for a cup final, and I remember you know, sitting at a cup final and, and being 40 metres from the pitch, yet you're, you're almost at pitch level in terms of not being able to have an elevated view of the pitch. It just wasn't a good stadium. I remember wading through the toilets there and 
not all the same things everybody else remembers, but they moved to Cardiff and I think a lot of people were thinking, well, what's this going to be like? And it was just, it was brilliant. I, I remember walking up to the stadium, you know, beforehand. I mean, the stadium was right in the city centre and, and it was this fantastic atmosphere. There were Liverpool fans in one bar, Arsenal fans in another. Beautiful hot day, lots of colour, lots of noise. And the same in the stadium. I mean, it, I'd been there to the stadium a few times. I've been covering Wales that season for the Times. I've been to the Millennium Stadium a few times. It had always been kind of only about a quarter full because (laughs) Wales weren't doing that that well at the time and it felt like a bit of a strange atmosphere. But you went in that day and it was, I'd say a lot of the most memorable cup finals I've I've been to of recent years have been, I've been at Cardiff. It feels like a proper football stadium. It was just loud, really enjoyable. I think we probably all reach an age and it probably says something about the FA Cup as well where certain FA Cup finals don't, stick in your in, in your mind and you think oh who won it in 2008 Portsmouth by the way um, who won it in 2012 who won it in 2013 but, but that that one was definitely one of the most memorable FA Cup finals in terms of atmosphere in terms of everything about it really yeah I absolutely love Cardiff I think it, it, it's brilliant for a cup final and no it took nothing away at all and it's a little bit of a, a leg down it's a bit of a trip at the time we're still doing coaches and enjoying it as well and just getting on you know with pile of butties pile of ale and, and, and the city was fantastic I think it you know can't emphasize that enough because the stadium's fantastic it's a great atmosphere in there it really sort of keeps the noise in and it's a proper proper football ground a good a good spot for a final but the city as well is like it's it's immediately around the stadium isn't it so it's like there's there's pubs everywhere there's bars everywhere there's a castle it's just that you know it's just a great setting and I remember you know everyone really enjoyed themselves before and after this was a Cardiff so it was slightly different but the atmosphere was so much better in Cardiff as well I mean you really felt this was a proper you know cup final occasion in a way I don't think when certainly the new Wembley you just don't you just don't get it now you know and Cardiff's a fantastic city for a for a cup final as well you know the, the, the party really began I remember there we got there on the I don't know whether we got, even got there Thursday night so all day Friday into Saturday and then again Saturday no one was, no one, I remember the Saturday night no one had rushed home a lot of people had gone on but Cardiff was still washed with Liverpool supporters so it was a proper like three day bender you know Amy Lawrence is a journalist presenter and Arsenal fan who wrote a book about Arsenal's 2003 to 2004 Invincibles It was a bit of an adventure for everyone going to Cardiff instead of Wembley. Nobody was quite sure what it was going to be like. And actually, in hindsight, those Cardiff finals were great in a lot of ways. I mean, anybody who goes to Wembley, it's a pig to get to. It's, there's not very much around the ground that's much fun to go and uh, get warmed up with your pre-match entertainment for or, or post-match celebrations. That closeness that you got with Cardiff, you felt like you were a bit close to the pitch somehow. The town was very set up for a load of people larking around having a good time it was boiling and i think everybody was just quite up for something a bit new it was quickly apparent that the heat was going to have a huge impact on the final itself clive tilsley was commentating on his third fa cup final fa cup finals always seem to be playing the sunshine or they always used to be whenever you see any footage of an old cup final the shadows and everything suggest that it was a beautiful day it was very much always the weekend to take a holiday somewhere in the UK because the sun always shone on FA Cup final day. It didn't shine that day, it beat. I remember walking up to the stadium. I'd actually stayed in the hotel next to the stadium. So I had a like um, 1,000 metre walk to our television compound and I was sweating drips by the time I got there. This was a, a 11 a.m. or something. It was such a hot day. The thing you remember about the FA Cup Finals, or one of the many things, I suppose, is on the television, they always say how hot it is pitch side. So it must it felt like it felt a million degrees pitch side. And, and listen, I'm, I'm as pasty as they come, so I felt every single degree of that heat. They had like a mosaic or whatever it was on the seat so they had the paper things and it was that hot we actually made hats out of the mosaic and put up to keep the sun off us a little bit it was absolutely boiling how it was boiling absolutely remember how it was the sides were high up and don't forget it they have the roof which comes over so of course that is going to come over a little so it made it so intense the heat in there can remember being on the bench and the sun literally beating in on our touchline, Gary McAllister with a, a cold towel right across his, his balding head. So it was that 
warm down there. It was just incredible. That was the first thing that hit you. It was the hottest I've ever been, I think. Well, hotter than that once before, which was I did a, a UEFA Cup game or a UEFA game down in Israel in August. And that was probably the only other game that was hotter than this. But no, that was incredibly hot at the stadium. And I can remember the players complaining about heat during the game. It was, it was incredibly warm. One of those players was Lee Dixon, who played 458 games for Arsenal and was looking to win the FA Cup for the third time. We obviously, with it being at Cardiff, we didn't really know how the shadows were and you kind of know what's going on at Wembley or you did do. And certainly there was a shadow right down the centre of the pitch. You know, you remember it went right down the middle of the halfway line, not end to end. It was right down the centre. I remember warming up before and I said, Tony, if you don't, if you don't win the toss and turn us round, because I was warming up in the sun, I said, I'm going to last about 20 minutes because I said, it is so hot. Anyway, he tossed up and I seen the, the coin come down. I was looking on anxiously. Sure enough, he, we lost the toss and he turned around to me and he just went and shook his head and I went, oh my God. So I had 45 minutes, but within seconds of the start, Michael Owen getting the ball sort of inside left and, and running at me and, and Tony thinking I couldn't, see myself getting through the first half and in fact I had a really splitting headache at half time due to the, the heat we all had ice packs on in the dressing room and on the backs of our necks and that but it was it was hottest I've played in, in the UK that's for sure When the game started and Arsenal started playing and you could just see the level above you could just see how good they were in comparison to us and because of the seat I had I was I was low down and, and I was close to the pitch and I just remember being just astounded by how good Arsenal were you know it was that level of football that was kind of new to English football and, and the Premier League and we couldn't live with it. I just remember in the first half the heat and someone running at me sort of two or three times and ended up getting a couple of blocks in and challenges and you sort of lifted the crowd round by where it was. But I don't ever remember us being too much on the ball or creating too many problems really. I don't think we played particularly well. The first big incident of the game comes as Thierry Henry is puffed through on goal. He goes round Sander Westerveld Stefan Ancho is on the line. Thierry Henry strikes the ball. On another day with another referee, he might have given a penalty and a red card because at the time, obviously, it was a penalty and, and a red card. Yes, I was lucky because I could have got a, a red card. To be honest with you, I never tried to stop the ball with my arms. And that's the truth. But obviously, you know, I tried to make myself as big as I could on the line. And when Henry hit the ball, he hit it quite hard from maybe, what, 10 yards away from me. It's not like I moved my arms going to the ball, towards the ball, but uh, the ball came and probably touched slightly my, uh, my elbow. So, uh, yeah, that was really what happened on that day. Emil Heskey started up front with Michael Owen in the 2001 FA Cup final having scored 22 goals in all competitions that season. It wasn't until after the game that I saw it clearly. Obviously, I'm thinking, oh, what a great save, blah, 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 on, on the line from Stefan, blah, blah, blah. So you're thinking, okay, great. And then when you actually see it at the end, you're like, whoa, okay. <laughs> but, you know, you get some given, you get some not given. So it's, we rode our luck a little bit. How the officials never seen Stefan handling the ball is, is just absolutely amazing. I would be going... Absolutely berserk on the touchline if that had been for us. Yeah, I looked back and it bounced off his hand so hard. Really looked like it had hit the post. Uh, I told the ref, like, you don't be ridiculous. You saw it as well. I think he had doubts as well. And it, also from the point of the linesman, I think it went so quick. Yeah, it's, it's one of those that need a little bit of luck. And then maybe even sometimes you see the referee already doubting. And then, yeah, if you can influence him a little bit, and then, yeah, at that moment it was it was great because I think we influenced them enough to give them too many doubts to give a penalty. It came in from my assistant referee's side. I didn't have a brilliant view of it, to be honest with you. And I don't know if you can recall, but we actually restarted the game with a goal kick because we believed that the ball had struck the outside of the post because it was right on the near post, wasn't it, to the assistant referee. I know we started with a, a goal kick because we believed it had actually struck the goal post. To be honest with you, the only person who challenged me over that was Thierry Henry. I mean, because he was the he was on a bit of a break, if I remember. I think he was probably the only Arsenal player that, that close. 
And my recollection was that, no, there wasn't. There wasn't a big deal. The, the only real deal was made afterward. cannot recall anybody, you know, come running at me for a decision. And I know my assistant referee, he, he was convinced it had struck me outside the post as well. But the game just continued and it, it didn't strike us as a major issue until days after when it was raised uh, in the media. But even when you look at that, which I obviously have seen in the years since, you'd question whether it was actually an intentional handball but they, it, because we didn't give it with that immaterial. And on that front row there, give me one of the best times in my life when Ancho saved the one from Henry. Great save, the goalie would have been proud of it. The most blatant handball you could ever wish to see. He comes steaming over to the line when he was directly in front of us. And we just stood up and gave him absolute dogs abuse. I've never seen a crowd actually affect a player by giving him so much stick. But because we were so close on, we actually did take a little step back. So I'm, I'm claiming my part of the victory there. <laughs> Liverpool may have won that battle, but they were losing the war as Arsenal had complete control of the game. I can't even remember if it was bad or just difficult. I think Arsenal were all over us and we couldn't play the way we wanted. We couldn't play the tactics we wanted. And they were at the day, I think, just too good. But then, yeah, if you rely on yourself and, and think, even though we're under pressure, just keep them out, keep everybody on their toes. And then uh, hopefully, uh, you never know, we got quality strikers up front. And you never know, take it as long as you need or take it, keep a clean sheet as long as you can. And then hopefully we'll we'll turn the game around. I would say Arsenal, ninety eight to two thousand four, were just a brilliant team. Obviously, the team that evolved over that, and they'd fallen well short of Man United in the league that season. But they were just an absolutely formidable team. And by that stage, Vieira had emerged as, as this absolute colossus in midfield, and Henri had emerged as a world class, top class player in attack and Bergkamp was there and you know the great defence that they had for so many years and Vieira absolutely dominated that game and you know total scruff of the neck performance and he ran it and Henri ran Liverpool ragged and it felt like one of the most one-sided FA Cup finals in them well in, in memory. Liverpool went in at half-time outplayed but with the game still goalless. No one was panicking yet. You knew Arsenal were a good team and you get games like that. It doesn't matter whether it's in the cup final or, or other games is that they're better than you on the day. Because we didn't go in there feeling inferior by any means. Well, they played very, very well. We certainly didn't play as well as we had been playing up until this game. So it was a matter of hanging in there, making sure that the game will turn. And when you're a coach, it's, hey, come on, you know, we're better than this. We know we can play better they can't play much better so those were the big things that we were trying to impress on the players Gerard was always cool and calm and everything I was the one who was more sort of Mr Angry but in this game you know you can't be like that because the players need positivity and that's what you do making sure certainly with the defence because we'd had such a tough time is making sure that we kept them together a little bit more and that they covered each other made us very very narrow he was never a manager who would think right this has got to improve we've got to change this we've got to do this we've got to you know we were nil-nil we were never an over expansive team but we were nil-nil and looking solid yes I think Stefan had saved one with his hand in that first half but I don't think there was too many scares really what I can remember I don't think Gerard Hule would have changed too much tactically. What he would have been expecting is maybe as our attacking players to maybe show a little bit more and can they do something special to win the game? Because in some ways, that was a lot of what the team was based on. Being solid and waiting for one of your, your star players to produce a piece of magic, whether that was Lippmann in that season, Robbie Fowler, Heskey was on fire that season, Michael Owen, Stevie in midfield, McAllister with a set piece or something, a free kick. So a lot of it was based on that, making sure that we didn't concede goals. In the second half, Arsenal's dominance intensified. Both Honcho and Hippier cleared off the line as wave after wave of Arsenal attack hit the Liverpool goal. When the opposition does create scoring opportunities, the big ones like this one, and they don't score, you start to think, you know, that might, that might be all day. We are a bit lucky. We are under the coach. They are the better team. But, like happens sometimes, they don't score. And mentally, uh, it has a big effect on the opposition as well. When you create uh, chances after chances and you don't score, in the back of your mind, you always think, wow, you know, we might get punished for that because we haven't taken no chances. Finally, Arsenal do make the breakthrough. 
On the 72nd minute, Liverpool give the ball away in defence and Lundberg puts Arsenal 1-0 up. I just made a mistake. I took too many chances. I think I, I still didn't want to kick the ball away and tried to keep, keep the ball and play. So I played it really hard to Stefan Henshaw who uh, then couldn't control the ball well. And then uh, at that moment, when, you, when you're leaking a goal like this, you, you always feel afterwards as well, it's like, well, you had such a good game and then you take so many chances. I sh- should have just kicked the ball away. It's always very disappointed and mentally it's tough because as long as it's nil-nil, you still believe nil-nil, you know, extra time penalties. Even, you know, if the team is better than, than you, the opposition, you still have a chance, you can go to the penalties and then it's a 50-50. Uh, obviously, when you concede a goal, then you know that you will have to produce something more. You will have to uh, to create at least uh, a scoring opportunity. And mentally, I remember it was hard. For a few minutes, you know, you, you start to think you're going to lose the cup final and maybe the only chance you have in your career to win it. And it takes a few minutes to, to get over it. I remember very distinctly having given up. It felt like the culmination of a long season. I know it wasn't a culmination because we started with a cup final, but it felt like we'd had a great time in the League Cup and Arsenal deserved every single applause that they were going to get for this FA Cup win. The pitch seemed massive, the players seemed absolutely knackered. As we've said, the heat was unbelievable. And I remember thinking, it's not our day today. But in them days, when you're a bit younger, you'd always feel like you've got a chance. So it was, it was quite unusual to feel like that. So when we were under the cosh, it wasn't the devastation I'd felt from the 96 Cup final. It was, oh, well, it is what it is. We, we've had a good day out here and listen, it's just not our day. I was watching the clock and I thought, really thought like, okay, ref, if you can blow your whistle now, or if we lose 1-0, it's, it's not that bad because we, sh- we should have been 3 or 4-0 down. So I thought, well, come on with this time or... Because it didn't even look like we were coming close to the goals or getting a corner or a free kick. So I think at that moment, the feeling I had was like, oh, I wish this was, was over quickly. And one that was not a disgrace. So let's blow the whistle. Arsenal battered us. They absolutely battered us. And, and you just thought, you know, there's, there's three off the line for Pipier. There's Hencho with his handball. And I think when Lundberg had his scores first, you just sort of... I think everyone sort of shrugged the shoulders a little bit and thought, well, they, did, they deserve it. Do you know what I mean? They've been all over us. I think a lot of us had all given up a little bit and little bit, little bit worse for wear by that stage as well, it's fair to say. And I think most of us were starting to think ahead to, you know, where are we going to go after and where are we going to go and have a pint? Arsenal should have been one up long before they were when they scored 20 minutes to go. And that looked like the end of the final. We're talking about Arsenal here, you know, we're talking about a practice famous organised defence and it was going to take something special to change the flow of the game. I think that Liverpool substitutions, particularly Gary McAllister's arrival, did change things to a certain degree but with five minutes to go there was probably only one winner. Gary McAllister had joined Liverpool in the previous summer and in this game came on in the 60th minute. It was desperate times and desperate measures. We had to be aggressive and had to be, you know, had to go and attack to try and get back in the game. At, at no time did I think we could come back and win. But Liverpool are one of these clubs that are, over the years, they, they, they can do it. They can, as long as you go right to the final whistle, you never know what can happen. And that's, that's what this club is founded on, that effort and desire right to the final whistle. And we managed to turn the game round. He was one of the most influential players of the 2001 year, I think, with all his experience in big games and big moments. All those moments, those are not luck. That's experience, and uh, we were a young side with experienced players who always gave something extra. And when Kerry came in, uh, he immediately started talking, keeping the ball, uh, passing the ball around. It changes something in the, in the game. Gary had come on. He takes a free kick from the left-hand side. His delivery was always perfect. And we had some good guys. We had some big guys, Marcus Babbel, Sammy Hupia, some really good presence in there. And if, you know if the delivery's right, we've got a chance. When that ball goes in, it gives a chance for a, for a ball. Mike was like lightning onto it. You see him dip his shoulder, the ball's in there. I'm side of the pitch at the dugout. I'm probably 15 rows up, corner flag of our box in the second half, the, the goal that we're attacking. The sun's beaming down on me all game and there's just people with shirts over their heads they can't deal with how hot it is. So we get that free kick and I remember the one thing I remember about that equaliser is the ball bounces down and bounces back up and it's, it's one of those moments where... Everything else around you just pales. It just all that you can see is that ball bouncing up and Michael Owen's foot 
going up to it. And as soon as I seen it bouncing up, I knew we'd scored. When I let the back of the net, we absolutely went bananas, I think is a fair, a fair description of it. That season, even if we went down, we, we had the confidence that we could actually come back. Especially with a, with a player like Michael Owen. You, you might not see him for 80 minutes, but he'll pop up at some stage and get you a goal. That was what he was so good at. If there was games in that season, he was injured. But you're playing, you get a goal and then you bring him off. It was that sort of demeanour that he had and, and you know the experience to go into a game knowing that he, he, he can pull us out of this game. Michael Owen scored 118 goals for Liverpool. That's part of being a centre-forward, is being a, an optimist. And I went into the game... I was on a really good run of form, scoring a load of goals in the, in the few games running up to it. So I had confidence if I could just get one chance and, and nothing nothing cropped up whole game. But you've got to keep the belief, you've got to keep working hard. And, and then the ball dropped to me with a couple of minutes to go. So, you know, and, and that's when confidence, that hard work and everything else is, uh, it's all, all matters for, for that split second. And of course, when that goal went in, then you feel like you're on top of the world and just give me the ball again and I'll do it again. And fortunately that happened. It didn't feel like one of those games where there was a potential comeback. You know, you can smell an atmosphere of a game often. And we've all sat there and thought, oh, God, it's coming, it's coming. Or conversely, you're just feeling comfortable and not feeling in trouble. And it didn't feel like Arsenal were in trouble. And Liverpool just looked like they couldn't get going. But that's where the beauty of football or any sport, and it's particularly fascinating within the context of a team sport, is that when an individual has his moment and Michael Owen had that he had that capacity to just have his moment and it wasn't the first time it had been witnessed already and would go on to be witnessed a lot more but I think it was a it was another one of those moments that you associate with Michael Owen as an out and out changer of games who could not have service and be quiet and then that explosiveness just fell his way and that was where when you talk about you can smell it or you can sense it the second he got the ball you can feel the whole momentum changing even before he scores I remember being surprised by Berger coming on because of the heat and I remember him not being that mobile he was cultured but he wasn't that mobile when he comes on he, he gets that ball deep and he springs Owen and to be honest the viewpoint I had I think it was the best in the ground for Owen's winner it such takes him away all the time I'm aware he's on his left foot and as well as that, I can see the angle. So I can see the angle that Seaman's left. I can see the gap he's left. And I can see there's probably one corner of net that he can put it. And either side, an inch, it's not a goal. And something about it, just something about the whole day just made you feel like he was going to score. Lee Dixon. To be honest with you, the winning goal it didn't really seem that much of a danger because the ball came over the top. Michael was near me and as it went over our heads, I turned and he was... You know, it made me laugh in the, in the newspapers the next day saying Michael Owen sprints past an ageing Dixon. He would have sprinted past him if I was 18. It had nothing to do with my age. He was just quicker than me. <laughs> but at the time I saw Tony back there and he's obviously got to beat David Seaman and he's only just over the halfway line and I had a split-second chance to pull him back because he saw I was quite close to him. Kind of shirt went very close to my hand and I just thought I'll just pull him back and take a, take a bucket. If we were totally against the tide and you could feel the game absolutely going away from you, I probably would have done. But it, again, I still felt reasonably comfortable that he wouldn't score from there and we'll end up getting the winner because we've had the penalty turned down and we've had most of the play, etc. So I didn't pull him back and, you know, I sometimes go to bed at night thinking, oh, I should have done. Even to this day, it pops into my head now and again. But, you know, the, he still had to... Adams um, to beat and also you know arguably the best goalkeeper in the country at the time so and he did both well done Michael to be honest I mean he was on his left foot Michael's left foot wasn't great if I'm being honest uh, there was a lot of improvement to the Gerard Hulia as he liked to tell Michael all the time that he helped him get the winner in that cup final and I, was, I think I was the first person to celebrate with him so I must have run a fair distance there from left back I remember him doing it, was it a cartwheel or something, he'd done something and then jumped into my arms and I, I think he couldn't believe that I, I got there that quickly after he'd scored to be honest. I mean the story I love one of my mates who I used to go to the Everton game with is just a bitter Evertonian and he was watching it. Obviously the first goal's gone and he's, he's gone home to get changed to go home and he's come back and it's 2-1. <laughs> 
said oh if you're listening now but I can't see him listening to the Anfield rap to be honest two great goals by Michael and it was definitely Michael's final to this day when he breaks away for the second one if he doesn't hit that square in the net it's not a goal there's only one square in the entire net that he's got to hit to make the goal and he did it Patrick Berger played 148 times for Liverpool and came off the bench to assist Michael Owen's winning goal. It was a clearance, you know, it was not a pass. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Well, it, was, it was a good ball, but obviously, you know, Michael still had a lot to do to score the goal, and, and he did, and we were, we, we were battered by Arsenal. You know, I didn't think we deserved to win the, the, the cup final, but, you know, that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. Michael scored two unbelievable goals, and, um, you know, obviously, you know, to, to win the FA Cup was special. Patrice Beggs, our French coach, who was with us, had worked with Michael on his left side, on his left foot, finishing, finishing from close range, from further out. He worked really hard with Michael. And lo and behold, he gets that ball. I can always remember somebody saying, oh, Patrick Berger just lumped the ball out of defence. It was a great ball from Patrick Bente along that line and Michael to shrug him off and then to, to score from the left hand past David Seaman, who's like six foot nine, and his outstretched arm it's just incredible it creeps inside that far side so it, it shows by good coaching good training being sort of wanting to improve the, the way Michael was it was just incredible and where he learned to do that flip over I don't think I'd ever seen him do it before and he'd done it in that corner in that orange shirt it was just it's just absolutely to see the, the faces on the people behind that goal was just astonishing. It was disbelief in the faces. There's a long-haired girl and there's a, I think there's a man in there who puts his hand across the top of his head, his forehead like that as though, what has just happened? And there's this girl who's just a, the disbelief, long-haired, straight part in the middle. I can always picture the girl and she is at the delight straight behind the goal. So all those things was incredible. Holmes of Football, the photographer, has got a really good picture called Hand in Mouth, which is a perfect picture of as the goal hits the back of the net. The reactions to myself, you, John, and my friend Ben. It's like a, it's like a painting, really. It's got every emotion you could wish to see from a football fan. There's happiness, there's sheer exhilaration, there's people like they're going to start crying. Someone's kissing a steward. I don't know who that was, but <laughs> there was a, there was a lot of craziness going on in the picture. And as I say, because at that time you're so involved in football and how much the 96 FA Cup final had hurt to do that to someone else obviously Arsenal have always been a rival but United doing to us hurt but then to get a last minute winner like that for a 17, 18 year old me was ugh, it, felt like, it felt like the biggest moment in the world I couldn't, I couldn't have asked for anything more from it I've always had in my head what a brilliant ball by Patrick Berger it is and it is but there's so much to do though there's so much to do for Michael Owen and, and for him to turn defenders of the qualities turn and for him to beat a goalkeeper of the qualities beaten. It's an absolutely brilliant goal. For his celebrations, brilliant as well. I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about Owen being a bit boring and not showing too much emotion and not being the loved son of Liverpool Football Club like Robbie Fowler was. And a lot of that's probably true to, in many respects. But I think in that moment... He's loving it just as much as we are, and it's written all over his face. His face is one of amazement. He's got his arms stretched out. He runs towards the crowd, and there's a great picture of it. In 1998, at the World Cup finals, I was ITV's kind of uh, number two commentator to the late, great Brian Moore. So Brian called the game England-Argentina, and I watched it in a control room in Paris. And I remember, funny enough, Peter Drury, who I worked with for, for many years, who does a lot of commentaries now for BT Sport. He was like the other support commentator and he was with me that day and when Owen scored against Argentina there were 20 lunatics that I worked with all jumping around in this control room and watching these big sofas with a few beers and things and when we all finally sat down again I actually said to Peter Drury we've learned one thing here that if we ever lucky enough to commentate on a goal as great and as memorable as that for the 15 seconds following the goal we can say whatever we fucking like because nobody will ever hear it. <laughs> and, and sure enough, you, you know, we always try and pick these great words, but in actual fact, the great goals, it just needs somebody to shout and scream and just generally dance around because you lose any sense of any reality or uh, perspective for those. And, and that's what makes football wonderful. 
I guess that, that goal three years later did pretty much the same to, to Liverpool fans. They were really, really good defenders that he ran past and he beat a really good goalkeeper. And he did it when he needed to do it. He did it when his team needed him to do it. Why was Mike Lowe in European football? That's why. That's, he could do that. He could win a game virtually on his own or by himself. Michael was just in the box when he got the ball. It was just, yeah, 9 out of 10 was a goal. One-on-one with a goalkeeper was 100% goal with Michael. I talk a lot about him if I'm looking back in my career about top strikers and... Uh, yeah, he was, he was a very special player. He was a small guy, scored a lot of goals with his head as well from corners. But then his finishing was just unbelievable. He was nearly unplayable, you know, he was basically fast. And it's exactly, you know, what happened when he scored his, uh, his second goal. Because when you receive the ball, there is still so much work to do. And his finishing was top class as well. Because, you know, when you remember his, uh, his shot left foot to beat Seaman, I wouldn't say there were much space to score from when he, he took the shot. So Michael Owen was, was just the, the best striker at the time in the world. And that's why he received the Ballon d'Or. Michael was, was one of those players where he was a brilliant player, but he was also one of those players that you think, he's a lucky bastard. You know, he had that thing about him where he was, he was like that even at cards or anything like that at that time. So he just knew something always special would, would happen, you know. Not knew it was going to happen then, but he was that type of player where things had sort of happened for him, I always felt. I think if you watch it back now, after all these years as well, it's a reminder really that whatever else went on, like what a player Michael Owen was, what a finisher Michael Owen was. There's something to remember about Michael Owen and just how good he was at that time. A lot of people have different feelings and different feelings about him. I will always hold him dear because of that day, because it was one of my best days in football. It was one of my greatest games. And I'll always, I'll always be grateful to him for that because people call it the Michael Owen Cup final when, you know, I don't really buy into to that kind of thing. But I think that those two individual moments belong to him and they, they will always belong to him. And, and the fine margins of both of those moments at that time, I think, could only have been decided by him. Michael Owen was a heartbreaker that day. I often make boxing analogies during commentaries. It's the guy who's won every round so far and is so far ahead on the card that it doesn't matter. And then suddenly he just walks onto one. And then once more, he walks onto another because the guy he's fighting is capable of doing that. And, you know, Liverpool had that puncher, that guy who was capable of delivering the knockout blow. There was nothing about what he was doing that he felt was unusual. He knew he could do it. He had self-assurance at a very young age. And that's what he took to Cardiff with him that day. He knew that if somebody would just play him in, or if a ball would just fall for him, as it did for the first goal, if somebody would play him in, as it did for the second goal, that he could and probably would score. Boy, did he believe in himself. I mean, imagine being an art. Try to imagine, all of you, try to imagine being an Arsenal fan that day. He just broke hearts. Owen's goals came in the 83rd and 88th minute of the game and Cardiff belonged to Liverpool again. For players and management, it was a mixture of elation and disbelief. I remember just putting my both arms and head in the air and thinking back when I was a kid in Switzerland in my little village and thinking 10 years ago where I was in front of my TV watching that game like I said before thinking, not even thinking of playing in a cup final and winning it, just watching that as people, you know, coming from the moon who plays in a cup final and then realizing, no, it's me. So I've came a long way, you know, when, when you think of that. For me, it was the best day of my football, football career. If not the best day of my life, I would say. That was the game who uh, gave me the most emotion and, and proud, I would say, on uh, on that day. And it's funny Stefan said that. It's not something that's come back to me too often. I remember doing exactly the same myself. Just lying there. You're not quite sure what to do. Listen, in Istanbul, we want a penalty shoot. Everyone's running everywhere. But in, in Cardiff, you're a bit overwhelmed by the fact of how have we won this? And the FA Cup, the heat, shattered, and you're just lying there for a minute or so before you get involved with the celebrations and the players and different things and yeah it, it was like that and I think a lot of it come from the fact that I'd forgotten how late Arsenal scored I thought it was maybe 60 or something we had half an hour to come back but it's not far away from 15 minutes away from sort of the end of the game so 
I think that would have been just shock as well that we'd actually won the game. And and the great thing about that day is, and that gets forgotten a little bit because of what come three or four years later in Istanbul, was that for a lot of Liverpool fans was their greatest moments as a Liverpool fan because it been probably the 90s hadn't gone great with winning trophies so a lot of the younger fans get involved you go to Cardiff and to win a cup final like that in the scenes my family explained to me afterwards in the stands when Michael scored and people are just jumping everywhere falling down seats, stairs everything because you know you can't actually believe that the game's being won and an absolutely special moment that sometimes gets forgotten and rightly so we're making the most of it now to be honest, I look at that game, I think there's very few clubs who can win games like that, and I think we're one of them. You find a way to win, and I think there's a few clubs around Europe who are like that. They find a way to win. They're not playing well, they grind something out, they stay in the game, and I think we had that, and that was something special, and it's not easy to win trophies. You can see that now with, with our own side, Liverpool, still sort of not won a trophy for a long time. It, people still mention, OK, you never won the league when we were playing, but I'll tell you what, we won a few trophies and it's, it's not easy. And you're in games like that and it's, it's neck and neck and you have to find a way to win. And that was the thing that I wouldn't say I'm most proud of because in some ways you want to blitz everyone and, and batter them with football. But I love the fact when we played against teams... They probably must have always thought, don't want to play against this Liverpool team, they're never beaten, they keep going, and you just hang in there, and, and that's what we did on that day, and then something falls, you get the goal, and then it's like, right, back in business, and that's when you sort of get that to belief, but that was that was a great trait of that team, that it was, it was never beaten. You were a little boy, and I could see it in my son now as well, they all play football, they all want to be uh, football players, those are the, the, the pictures you, you watch as a long, young boy, you see players with the, with the cup. And you really want to do that as well, and you, that's that's why you play football for. And then when something happens, and uh, you are able to win that cup, and you stand there, and they give you the cup, and then you hold that cup up, and then you got so many things are going through your mind. You feel like a young boy again, looking at the television. Yeah, that was the most amazing, amazing feeling. Celebrations was just incredible after that 2001 game because of that feeling of euphoria of what you've just achieved when it was it was going so difficult against you. If I could rewind the clock and, and have one day again in my life then I would say it would be that. It was probably my most favourite as a as a professional footballer. Obviously scoring the two goals, the occasion, lifting the cup against a great team, playing in a great team as well. And when you look back, it's not qualification to the Champions League. It's not loads of other things that's associated with, with being a footballer it's those days when you win a trophy and you, you know, you're together with, with all your teammates and you have a party afterwards they're the, they're the ones that you, you remember I mean it took me a good, good while to, to come down from the, from the feeling of, of scoring those two goals in that final and as I say they're the, they're the moments that you miss when you, when you retire Of course the ecstasy for the Liverpool players was agony for the Arsenal ones who dominated the game and somehow lost well, there's another couple of reasons why it was so disappointing. Is because you play in a final that you you think you know you can't possibly lose it, and then you lose it. It kind of double whammy feeling of. I mean, some some finals you play and you think it's touch and go, and then you get the relief of winning. But that one, we didn't feel as if we could possibly lose it, and then we did. But also had a very poignant feeling towards a lot of the Arsenal players as well because of David Rowcastle passing away, and his son Ryan was a mascot that day. I remember he, he was on the pitch before the game and we, we were just about to kick off and he was running off the pitch and I made a, a real sort of conscious effort to go and say something to him as he was going off the pitch and I, and I kind of, with all good intentions, said, it's OK, don't worry, Ryan, we'll win it for your dad type thing and, and obviously we didn't and we lost it. So I, I felt really a bit guilty about that because obviously after the game finished and everyone was down and I, he was standing on the side of the pitch looking a little bit down in the dumps because we'd lost the game that hit me as well I built his hopes up by just saying we were going to win it and and obviously we didn't so it was quite an emotional final all round I remember interviewing Thierry Henry afterwards he just couldn't believe it he was, he was talking about it like it was the, the biggest travesty ever it was then that he came out with his famous fox in the box comment about, about what Arsenal really needed I think he looked at Liverpool's performance that day and thought we need a player who can do that we need a player who can just finish off the chances when the ball drops in the penalty area like the Owen equaliser and when you talk about someone like that who's Arsenal's all-time record goal scorer 
saying, yeah, well, what we really need is, is somebody who's like a fox in the penalty area. Um, that probably gives you some insight into what a, a poacher Owen was and what a poacher you know, Fowler was as well. And uh, obviously the, the response to that was to go out and sign Franny Jeffers. The thing that sticks in my mind is that Thierry Henry himself has carried it with him. And that's when you talk about that sense of those injustices that, you, you know, get locked away in some deep, dark place and they never actually disappear. He spoke about that specific thing later and it was really very clear that this was a moment that he couldn't let go of and that actually drove him on to an extent and always was in his mind whenever he played other games against Liverpool. I can read you a passage of Thierry Henry talking about that particular incident. I'll decline to do the accent though. He says, that game was a joke. I was devastated. I came back home. How can you lose a game like this? It was so hard to take. I said to myself, especially when I used to play after that against Liverpool, I had something special. Every time I used to play against Liverpool, I used to think about that FA Cup final and make sure they were going to suffer, not us. For supporters too, it was a case of celebrating with every last ounce of energy you had left. I think around that time was probably where they started piping music in as well. But from what I can remember, it didn't feel like there was a lot of the forced upon atmosphere it felt like it was left a little bit more to the Liverpool fans to just make it our moment Cardiff was a good stadium for it because it was so big you had half the ends the atmosphere was going right around that's the bit as a football fan you live for that the moments in the match are great and the goals going in are unbridled but that feeling of elation when you've actually won a cup and when they go to pick it up and when you present the trophy that's what you're in it for near the moments you remember when you look back on them but that, on that day after such a a draining day and such a long trip down here it made everything worthwhile obviously I remember absolutely bouncing out of that ground as well it was it was so unbelievable that we'd won it after what had come before I remember seeing you know buses of Arsenal fans going past and they looked so sad and so down and I just thought I don't blame you a lot of them looked quite angry actually and I thought if it had been the other way around I'd just watched my team stuff your team like that and then lose I'd, I'd be angry as well uh, but when it's the other way around it's absolutely brilliant and as I say I was only sort of 25-ish then so fair to say it was celebrated and celebrated properly Now the way home everyone everyone had had a drink but I remember everyone just being knackered just being absolutely exhausted through the game the day the heat it, it was one of those where it was just absolutely zapping and there was just this this quiet contentness on the coach of knowing that we'd We'd secured two cups in an amazing season. There was a possible further one to come. For players, there was no excess celebrations. There were still two games left of the season. We stayed in Cardiff and we were allowed to, with a meal, have a a glass of wine or whatever it may have been. And we all had to be in bed by 12 o'clock, basically, and that was it. And at the time, you're thinking, oh, you know, we just won the cup type of thing. But I don't think anyone was thinking, you know, getting upset with Gerard Uli. It's a bit like, oh, it'd be nice to celebrate a cup final. But uh, he was adamant how important the, the game was sort of three days later and uh, he was right. It was sort of a job well done. I, I always remember getting back into the room with me, me kit bag or me, me boots and stuff, going into the room and obviously having to go back up for the meal and just, just sort of crashing on my bed, really, and just sort of just lying there thinking, you've won the FA Cup. We had a job to do. There was a week left of the season. We put that much into it now and there was two games left at the UEFA Cup final and then we had Charlton on the last day where we, we had to win both really because in some ways Gerard Hulier's vision for the club was that to be a Champions League club so in some ways he was actually more obsessed with getting into the Champions League really the Charlton game than as much as the others but I mean it'll be a long time before Liverpool have a week again like that so I remember Marcus Bobble he won everything with Bayern Munich Champions League Cups and he says in Germany you have to celebrate the Cup because you never know what happens next week. And if you lose next week in Dortmund, yeah, you can't come back to Liverpool and still uh, celebrate the FA Cup final because it's, it's, it's gone. You're disappointed about the... F- so uh, live the moment and uh, celebrate the moment as well. But it was, yeah, uh, we could, well, we were not allowed to do that. So we had one glass of champagne. I remember uh, all the family were there. We had dinner, uh, one glass of champagne, and that's it. Everybody went to bed. I think even the next day we were, we were back in training. And it was, it was unreal. The sacrifices were worth it. Liverpool completed an historic treble by beating Alaves 5-4 in Dortmund before cementing third place and Champions League football the following year by beating Charlton Athletic 4-0 away from home. 
Now everyone could relax, celebrate and reflect on what the team had achieved. That, in some ways, I always say is my, is my favourite season because it was just so successful because you, you're winning every week. We've done well in the league, every cup competition you win. So everyone's coming in the next day to Melwood in a good mood, everyone's happy. You go for a drink after some of the games, everyone's in a good mood. It was different to 2005, there was a lot of ups and downs. We know what happened at the end of it. But throughout the season, you remember Burnley going out in the cup or league games, we ain't great. So, I mean, 2001, the way it was just just kicking on to those two cup finals. And I always say this, when will the next time be that Liverpool have got two cup finals in three days? You know, it'd be brilliant if we could get back back to that. But I think it just shows how special that season was and what we actually did as a team. There were some huge, huge moments. January, February, March, April, May. Wow. What a few months that was. And it was just astonishing to be a part of it. It was just to make everybody so, so happy with lifting all those trophies. Obviously, we had our party with the fan and the city when we parade with the trophy on the bus, you know. I remember my neighbour saying there will be a lot of people around the city when you parade. And to be honest, I've never experienced something like that. So I was thinking, I don't know, maybe they will have a few, a few thousand. Um, and that's it, really. And when we went to the city, the street of Liverpool, and you could see, I think it was 100,000 packed all over the city. It's something you can't believe until you see it with your own eyes. You know, I would tell people here in Switzerland that they would not really realize what it meant. So that's another day I will remember in my life. With a lot of time to reflect on on that treble winning season, and it, every time the more you sit down and analyse it, the more special it becomes in my mind. Because you know, you look how difficult it is to win anything, let alone win three trophies in the one season, and then I'll go and win probably won five. So it's it's special memories, very fond memories, and a great achievement. You know, not to be underestimated by any means. There's been better trebles, there's been better doubles, but it's very unique treble. This is an era when. We were doing stories about rotation policies and stuff and having too many players and people were going nuts when they were changing the team. And yet, I think that season, they played every game they could possibly play. And I don't think, even at the time, I very much doubt Uye got half as much credit as he should have done for having that team so prepared for that final running. Because they weren't just, it's known as a treble, but it was, it was actually four massive targets. And coming in the Champions League places was possibly the biggest one of all because we hadn't, well, I've been in the Champions League since the bad. I think the main thing with that team was they were so tough. I think if you look at it now, maybe it's that great balance between experienced players with the nows and the young up-and-coming ones. So Stevie G's just coming through there, Cara, Michael's there, Daddy Murphy, they're all kind of young. They were called the clique later, weren't they? But they were like, you know, very close. And then you've got like the likes of Babel, who people forget about now. Shocking what happened to him. It was only the following summer he had the illness and he was brilliant. <laughs> you know, Gary Mack, obviously, Sammy Upier, Encho, Upier and Encho. It was so difficult to score goals. But it was just a very well-balanced team. I don't think it was the most flamboyant Liverpool team ever, but it knew how to win games and you know, for you know, I think for two years he, he had a really fantastic side there, really. It's just part of a wonderful season as a Red. One I would say is still really underrated. I think if you lived it, you loved it because you know we, we do what we do in the cups, but we also get back into Europe via the league. And I think we only finished a point behind Arsenal, who was second in the league that year. So you know we were quite close. It was a fantastic season and, fa- and fantastic year for me personally going to match and for a long time I've been banned from this now like but for a long time I had a lot of goals framed and up on the wall in the house from that season just because it was really special to me I had all the tickets as well framed and up because it was one of my best seasons as a fan going to match. This emerging new Liverpool side that was coming through was was obvious with its enthusiasm and youth and kind of a little bit envious of that group of players who seemed to get on so well on and off the pitch and were all a similar age and it seemed like it was quite a daunting prospect if they all stayed together that they would go on and, and be quite dominant. Liverpool's dominance under Gerard Houllier didn't materialise. The following season they won 11 more points to finish second in the Premier League yet Arsenal themselves added 17 more points to win the title as well as the FA Cup. For that squad, it would be the FA Cup in 2001 that would be their crowning moment. 
for me, the FA Cup was always special and will always be special. Even watching this season's FA Cup, I still get jealous when you see somebody else lifting it up. So the FA Cup for me was, without doubt, the pinnacle of the season, which when you consider the League Cup, when we'd won that, felt so enormous. When Farah scored that goal, I remember the celebration in our end and it was absolutely berserk. It was crazy because we hadn't won a trophy for, what, it was 95 before we last won six years. So the League Cup felt enormous. But the FA Cup put that into insignificance, especially with the way that we won it. To take it off an Arsenal team at the time, we were absolutely brilliant. They're not too far away from being the, probably one of the best teams the Premier League's ever seen. And we've taken it off them in the manner that we did so late on. It's heartbreaking to lose that way, but to win a game that way, there's no better way. I think with Liverpool Football Club, when the club has hope, there's no place in the world you'd rather be. And I remember that time, you just having that hope and feeling that something was happening. It was a season to remember, and for me, that will always be the game that encapsulates it. Moments in Time is produced by myself and Josh Sexton, with support from everyone at the Anfield Wrap. Huge thanks to all of the contributors on this episode. In order of appearance, Phil Thompson, Chris Bascom, Ollie Kay, Gareth Roberts, Sander Westerveld, Stefan Honcho, Jamie Carragher, Steve Dunn, Kevin Walsh, Dan Morgan, Amy Lawrence, Clive Tildesley, Lee Dixon, Emil Heskey, Gary McAllister, Michael Owen and Patrick Berger. We are able to produce these audio documentaries because of the support of people who subscribe to the Anfield app, so thanks a lot to all those people. If you don't yet subscribe to our content, but are interested in sharing the journey of supporting LFC with us, visit theanfieldwrap.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.